Hello, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for this week, ending early on Thursday, the 28th of September 2023. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 to 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the podcast this week, we were lucky enough to be joined by AFL star and transgender advocate Danielle Laidley, talking all about the new doco, Danielle Laidley, Two Tribes. Chris KP jumped in Dr. Jen's seat for Weird Science and talked about the Ig Nobel Prize and we discussed the etiquette of the pop-in. Pastor devotee Jacqueline Krupe speaks to us about her latest book, Pastor Love, and from popping in to being straight up not invited, we discuss gatecrashing and its place. And senior lecturer in politics, Dr. Damon Alexander, fills us in on all things about Dan Andrews' shock resignation. Melbourne's own Triple R. Danielle Laidley is a former elite footballer and senior AFL coach. She's also a memoirist and now star of the Stan original documentary Revealed Danielle Laidley, Two Tribes, which dives into her battles with gender identity, drugs, the media, Victoria Police and forging her new life with partner Donna. Danielle, welcome to Breakfasters. Uh, Good morning. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Um, Now, Danielle, you didn't get much choice um, in coming out due to photographs of yourself being leaked um, back in uh, 2021. How does it feel about getting the chance to take back control of your narrative in this new Stan documentary? Yeah, well, that's probably um, the first reason why when we sat down to talk about whether I wanted to tell my story... um, Invariably, that was um, the main reason to take back control of the narratives um, and tell tell the story in in our own words. Um, you know, the narrative was not kind. Um, you know, when I um, when it came out in the uh, in the media. Um, so you know that that's the main reason why we um, we've now um, told our story. Um, one of the things that I really remember is how much the AFL really got around you after um, the leak, which I, um, as a fellow trans person who loves football, was like really um, impressed with. And the images of you and your partner Donna um, walking the Brownlow um, red carpet, not this year, but in previous years, um, are absolutely iconic. And I think both an important part of LGBTIQ history and sports history, um, you know, for generations to come. Um, how does it feel kind of having those moments with you and your partner? Um, first of all, they are, they're fun. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we uh, we didn't go this year. Um, we've been so busy with the premiere of the doc, uh, documentary and doing lots of media and that sort of stuff. But you know, we live our life. Um, it is we live a pretty quiet life. Um, not a lot of people would probably think that over the last few weeks. But on occasions like that, where the AFL have been uh, so inclusive. Um, and that particularly last year was um, doing some work for um, Virgin Australia um, and promoting their uh, pride flights. Um, they did the first one this year out of Perth, which was we were on and it was fun. Um, but just to go there, you know, I've been to many, many Brownlows, um, but to go there, you know, as, as me, 
um, and be be very proud of that um, and to be seen. I, you know, I, if I can help uh, the rainbow community, in particular the transgender community in any way, is it, you know, I can be seen living my life, um, you know, with a beautiful partner, um, being accepted um, from an in, with an in, from an industry that I grew up in. Um, I think it's a great thing. The AFL has been scrutinised for a long time, but particularly recently for not having any players come out. There was a you know recent Four Corners story on it. Were you surprised at all at how accepting they were of you when when this when you were even though you were outed without your choice, without having control over that? Were you surprised by the acceptance from the AFL? Um, no, not really. Um, from the top down, from Gill. You know, all the way through to Clubland, the clubs that I played for um, have been very um, accepting. Um, and the reality is, and I, I think uh, Gil has quoted this, that there are and probably are um, some people who struggle with their sexual um, orientation or gender identity within the AFL now. Um, and clubs know and family know and friends know. Um and you know they wrap their they wrap their arms around them. Um, it's not an AFL issue; it's um, a societal issue, um, and that's what you know I've had to deal with the societal issue rather than an AFL issue. Mm. What is your hope, I guess, for you know sport and society after sharing your story so publicly? Um, I think the biggest thing is. Um, People stop listening, uh, reading my book, watching, um, and have a better understanding of what particularly the transgender community go through, um, and just having an awareness. Um, and the reality is, it might not be everyone's cup of tea. Um, and since the documentary has come out, I have had thousands upon thousands of messages. But I've had quite a few messages from people who have watched the documentary, um, didn't know my sporting background um, and had no idea what gender dysphoria um, was. Um, and the messages coming through from those people have been of thank you. Um, I have a better understanding um, of what, you know, you go through um, and I'm grateful for that. And... Those are the conversations um, that that person or people who have sent those messages now will go on and talk to other people um, about it. Um, you know, as I said, it's not everyone's cup of tea. Um, but as long as people are respectful um, and allow people to live their their life, we're all we're all humans. We all want to be loved and love. Uh, we want to be accepted, um, and I'm I'm hoping that. You know, as the documentary's up on stand for for quite a while, I suppose, um, people will get to see that messaging come through. How did it feel um, for you, Danielle, looking at um, or revisiting some of the kind of archival materials which people may not have seen before, um, charting your early career, um, growing up in... Um, 
a working class suburb of Perth, Balgar, I think it was, and your early career in football. How does it feel now um, as somebody who's a bit older and has had a lot of change and a lot of um, battles in life? How does it feel looking back at that young person? Um, I think they made me out to be a better footballer than I was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but um, so there was, you know, looking back on the football part of it, when, when you actually sit there and it's put in front of you, um, the first feeling um, was proud. Um, and then there was a lot of archival um, family footage that was so incredibly important um, to me. Um, and that's been great. But the, So I suppose the whole realm of, um, at times, a tinge of sadness, um, you know, there were some laughs, um, some happy times. Um, and as I said, um, pretty proud of, you know, what you know, I was able to achieve in the first phase of my life. Can we talk a bit about your relationship with Donna? She, she features heavily in the in the doco, um, and it's such a it's such a beautiful portrait of your lives together. Can you can you tell us a bit about about the part you play in each other's lives? Um, well, we uh, joined at the hip. Um, we do everything together. We um, you know we live between Melbourne and um, and Perth. Um, we're sort of back and forth every. Every couple of weeks, we have a business in Perth. Um, we have family in Perth, um, and we do a lot of um, work when we're um, over here. Um, you know, we we reconnected. You know, probably about two thousand and sixteen. I think it was, um, and it was a slow burn at that at that stage. Um, and we started then catching up um, in Melbourne and in in Bali. Um, and it sort of just grew from there. Um, it was quite difficult for Donna at times because I would go missing um, and wouldn't respond, um, particularly when I was going through some some darker times, um, you know, and I um, am grateful that she loves me for, for the person who I, who I am, um, regardless, um, you know, and I suppose the... The, um, the the baseline of our relationship is I can be me and Donna can be herself and we have fun together. Sounds like a pretty simple recipe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, Danielle, tell us, what's your relationship with um, football and the AFL today? I know you played for West Coast. I remember watching you when I was a little kid um, back in WA and um, you coached for North Melbourne. Um, you know, obviously, we've just had the Brownlow last night. Do you, do you tune in? Do you, do you still watch and keep up to date with what's going on in the AFL? Oh, yeah. Um, Donna and I watch every game. Um, we go to um, games, whether they're here um, in Melbourne, uh, whether they're here, uh, you know, or in Perth. Um, we watch every AFLW game. Um, we're going to watch the North Girls this weekend um, on Sunday. They go great. Um, <laughs> yeah, they slipped up a bit on the weekend, but um, you know they're going they're going very well. Um, so so there's that side of it. Um, but there's also the socialising and the reconnecting um, 
of people who I played with or who I coached or who I work with in the AFL or and the AFL themselves um, has been um, has been wonderful. Do you have a tip for the weekend? Um, I think Collingwood have been the best team all all year, Mm. Um, but really it's the best team on the day this weekend. Um, Very diplomatic of you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I still will say Collingwood, but I think Brisbane um, are as ready as they've ever been, Um, you know, since their triple uh, premiership years back in the early 2000s. Mm. All right. Uh, well, Danielle Laidley, thank you so much for joining us. And if you want to uh, find out more about um, Danielle Laidley and her story, you can jump on to Stan and watch the Stan original documentary Revealed, Danielle Laidley, Two Tribes. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. time for Weird Science with Chris KP filling in for Dr. Jen this morning. Hey, Chris. Hello. Good to be here. Yeah, Thanks for coming. Oh, it's always, always a pleasure. <laughs> always a pleasure. Right way to start the day. Uh, I, um, I've bundled together some bits and pieces from the annual Ig Nobel Awards this year. If you're not familiar with the Ig Nobel Awards, they've been happening for about more than 30 years uh, and they build themselves as science that makes you laugh then makes you think. Uh, so everything that I'm about to describe comes from genuinely credible, peer-reviewed, published research by proper scientists, oh. no matter how odd, confronting, weird, funny it might sound. <laughs> I love this approach. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great. It's, it is actually, I mean, if you think about anything for mm. long enough, it becomes interesting. Yeah. Uh, and so it's not that surprising, I suppose, but this, is, this stuff stands out. Uh, let me begin with something that, um, let me ask you a question. Mm. How many hairs do you reckon you've got in one nostril? Oh, on a good day? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if more is good or less is good. 20? Oh, mm. wow. I was going to go much higher. Like, mm, I was thinking high too. I'll speak for yourself. That, I don't know. <laughs> I thought because they're tiny. They are. So I'm thinking like 100. Oh, that's very impressive. Uh, apparently there is between, well, the average is between 112. Hey. And 120, that's ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good, pretty good, uh, yeah. yes. And so it's not, it's not that many. When you, I was thinking the same thing. I thought really tiny, they'd be loads. It's not that many, but they have a very important function, we think. The, the assumption has been that they filter out particles and therefore it's good for your lungs and therefore good for your health. That's never been really well tested. It mm. just kind of makes sense. Why else would you have hairs in your nose? Uh, so a group of scientists uh, actually studied uh, nose hairs in cadavers. Because they had access to them, I suppose, yeah. uh, and found that average number. But what was really interesting was, was not what they found, but why they were doing it. Mm-hmm. Because let's assume that they found they found the number. They found that they were generally at the front of the nostril. You didn't have very many at the back. Um, and, uh, and they found that it was pretty consistent across mm-hmm. most people. So that seems like it's something we need. It's something we've evolved to have. It's not a random thing. Uh, but not everyone does. Alopecia sufferers 
don't have hairs at all, including in their nose. Okay. Which, of course, makes them vulnerable to all the things that we don't think, you know, we don't aren't vulnerable to because they don't have hairs in their nose. So they are mm. more likely to get um, uh, severe allergy effects. They're more likely to get infections mm. uh, through their nasal, nasal cavities. So, yeah, this is a piece of research that basically says, yeah, let's look at dead people's noses and see what we can find. <laughs> but it's confirming that this actually really does matter. Wow. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, me too. Uh, when I was um, a relatively young but adult student, uh, I, uh, I was doing a second, I think it was second year soil science subject. And I recall vividly, and I, to this day, I do not know if this is a piss take, but I remember vividly being at a road cutting on the side of the road and the tutor lecturer person was having his pick up bits of dirt and chew it. Oh. Yeah. That wouldn't um, happen like today. <laughs> yeah, today. I, exactly. Yeah. I, yeah, precisely. And it probably shouldn't happen then either, to be honest. But the logic behind this was that if it was, if it was a genuine clay, it just tastes clayy. Right? Yeah. It's mm. chewy. Right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing else to it. If it's sand, you can tell anyway, but it's crunchy. But if it's somewhere between, if it's a loam, the way you can tell this quickly is by chewing it. If it crunches at all, it's a loam. If it doesn't, it's a clay because the crunch is the literally big particles of sand stuff in there. So I have experienced this next prize, which is the Chemistry and Geology Prize. Uh, we're going to, uh, to Jan Zalazowicz, I think, um, for uh, explaining why scientists like to lick rocks. Ah. Yeah. Uh, and his reason for the interesting thing is he licks rocks as a geologist because when you wet the surface, you can see more underneath. Okay. You can see all these amazing, you know, patterns and connections and particles, etc. So for him, it's really informative as a quick stop. I can lick, lick this rock and go, oh, look at that. There's so much more you can see because you're wiping away all the dust. And mm. crap off the isn't top. there like, isn't a water bottle surely then like you know, close I did, distance? I did wonder that. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I was watching the conversations. All, all of the Nobel Awards are presented by Nobel laureates. So it's, mm. it's even more credible. But I was watching the conversation. So that between... makes it okay to lick rocks. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I think it makes it normal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm watching them talking about it, and I had the same thought. I'm like, aren't there other ways to do this? Mm. And even licking your hand and wiping it on the rock is, yeah. a, is a step removed. Um, but yeah, they never came up. Like it was the most normal thing around. Mm. Anyway, I don't know how common it is. Uh, they've both been doing this for some time. But he also went into history and found that. See, now we can do all kinds of things. You can X-ray rocks. You can scan rocks. You can break them open easily. You can heat them up. You can apply pressure to them. You can do lots of things to them. To understand what's inside that wasn't really a thing a long time ago uh, so in the early-ish 1700s there was uh, a guy called Giovanni Arduino mm. and one of his things was tasting the rocks and tasting the water from the rocks so water passing through rocks and taste itself was actually a really important part of what he did he describes for example that springs that emerge from a stratum full of marcasite and coal have an acid spicy flavour. <laughs> Vitriolic, yes, but with a certain pleasantness that I cannot describe, <laughs> like the acidity of wine. Yes. Oh, okay. So, yeah, there are researchers doing this as a thing. It was a recognised thing for a long time. So, yeah, so, um, so Jan gets a prize for, for pointing yeah. that apart. I think I'd like to lick a seaside rock. Oh, yeah. salty, oh, you know, nice. yeah, on the beach, yeah. yeah it's like an oyster. My, my, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Recession like oyster. A, exactly. My that's not, perhaps not on an off-leash <laughs> beach. Yeah, my flavour profile, I think. It's <laughs> <laughs> very reasonable and very interesting too. There's lots in those rocks. Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, okay, so this is the, I love this because it's kind of obvious, but someone had to study it like so many things. Uh, and that is, it's two studies actually that, that, that produced the education prize for essentially studying the boredom of teachers and students. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> so here's the thing, right? 
if you think something's going to be boring, and let's face it, we have all been there. And in fact, I would suggest there are people listening to this program that heard weird signs coming up and went, oh, and rolled their eyes politely. Well, you have possibly just made it more boring for yourself. Ah, uh, self-fulfilling. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it makes a lot of sense if you go in. And I think it's kind of like confirmation bias. You're looking for the slightest thing. As soon as you sense boredom, it's like, I told you so. Mm. And it gets worse. But the really interesting study for me was that if the students perceive that the teacher is bored, they will also be bored. Oh, yeah. So it matters. Fake it if you have to. Yes. It matters. Strut uh, into that whiteboard. Well, and, and I, reckon that's, I reckon that's true too. I, I think of a number of teachers when I was in high school in particular who whose subjects I was not particularly into. And yeah. in many cases, I didn't really like them, mm. but they were so into it mm-hmm. that it kind of did buy you a bit it's of time. infectious. Yeah. yeah. You find that also in TV shows, you know, when they have specialists on who are just so enthusiastic about, you know, antiquities or whatever, and you're just like, oh, now I just love this as well. Yeah. I, I have become an antiques roadshow <laughs> big time, big time. Do you secretly hope or, like, constantly <laughs> thinking you're stumbling across, like, yeah, a fortune in op shops? All those rocks you've been licking, maybe it'll be worth something. I'm thinking with the same level of, uh, of likelihood as, uh, as suddenly discovering I'm actually a prince. Uh, yeah. But yes, I do absolutely. absolutely. Talking I, of princes, yes. should we should we touch upon what the prize is for? Uh... Well, yeah, it's it's hilarious. They do get uh, they have a, a like a you know a thing a trophy like thing they get, um, but they also get a trillion dollar note. Um, yeah, uh, and, and... and because it's all done remotely, the great thing is that you, you, it's so wonderfully B grade. There's actually uh, the presenter actually you know essentially slides the dollar note the trillion dollar note off camera and then it appears on camera <laughs> next to the other person they all get very excited about it yeah I, I i assume that they everyone knows that it can't be banked i'm assuming where's this trillion dollar note from uh the ignoble community <laughs> I, don't, I don't know I apparently, no apparently it's from zimbabwe though is it really yeah, yeah. i didn't know that yes wow. so um so what's i suppose <laughs> well i don't know maybe get you a coffee yeah <laughs> Ten trillion—that's mm. a, a very—that's a very cool thing. I've actually just recently been going through old, you know, dollars and coins and stuff from you know foreign currencies, and finding out that I I do have eight bucks worth of uh, of Swiss francs. Um, it's one coin, but I've also got fifteen cents worth of Egyptian dollars. It's three notes. Uh, <laughs> wow! Yeah. Notes carry more weight. Than they. <laughs> maybe, well, maybe, maybe. Uh, let me just think. I've got uh, this. Okay, if I can squeeze in three more, I think I can squeeze in three more. Yeah, go on. This is definitely weird, and apologies for people who are eating, um, although that's kind of part of the issue here. Uh, Swing Min Park won the Public Health Prize uh, for what he calls the Stanford Toilet. And interestingly, in the awards ceremony, he actually referred to Bill Gates and says Bill Gates has been putting toilets in, in third world countries because that's an incredibly important part of hygiene, and that's great. But he reckons that Bill's missing out on something, and that's the opportunity for health monitoring. So this toilet is in many ways a normal functional flushing toilet as we have all experienced, but it includes a urinalysis dipstick test, a computer vision system, oh. uh, yeah, has a telecommunications link so any data can immediately upload it to something and it has an anal print sensor <laughs> so we can identify you. Yes, you have a unique anus. Um, so without logging in, you just sit down. It goes, yep, I recognise that butt. And it does a quick urine test. It does a quick turd test. It goes, this is where you're at at the moment. Um, Sounds like a great fine. idea. It sounds fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Imagine the toilet starts like closing its lid on you. <laughs> or, or calling you into the room. Yeah, come on, come on. It's been hours. I don't know. Um, 
So that that appealed to me enormously, uh, as did the nutrition prize, which went to a couple of Japanese researchers who electrified chopsticks and forks, oh. yeah, and spoons. <gasps> Very... Is this connected to the toilet yeah. one? Uh, well, <laughs> well, you know, the the food bone connected to the toilet bone. Um, <laughs> I think that's good science. Uh, basically, it's a very gentle current. But what they found is that if you alter, run a current through food, you can change the taste of it. Because essentially when you taste things, it's just electrical signals on your tongue. Uh, and what, in particular, low-sodium foods, which as the researchers point out, aren't very tasty, um, can be made more salty by tasting them through an electrified <laughs> utensil. Wow. You can actually move the flavour around your mouth too. You can actually move the fork around the sides of your mouth and around your tongue and get different flavours. <laughs> yeah. They're tr- they're act- they've actually made companies. Dangerous? They are trying to pitch this. Um, <laughs> Elect- like liquids, electricity? No, very, very low current. So you're not going to get zapped. I mean, it seems like a lot of work to go to, to be frank. Yeah, you just put salt in on battery. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you know, they'll be kids with it yeah. though. Get one of those recession oysters. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. This one's cool. Um, let me give you one more that I think will appeal to people. Uh, have you, are you familiar with the concept of jamais vu? Like déjà vu, but never. Close. Very good. Very good French student. Thank um, you. It's, uh, it's it's almost the opposite of déjà vu. So déjà vu is when you when you see something or you experience something which you feel like you've experienced mm. before, but you can't have because you haven't been there, time hasn't happened, or the situation's never arisen, but it feels familiar. Jamais vu is the opposite. Now, one of the best ways to fake this, so the researchers won this award for actually studying that you can, in fact, kind of force this on people, Mm. but people who experience déjà vu are also more likely to experience jamais vu. And the best way to do this, in my opinion, is to listen to a word. So if I said breakfast to you, Mm. it's a word you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. But if I said breakfast, breakfast, breakfast. Oh, and then it loses all meaning. After a while, it's like, what is this? Now, you know you know the word, but it suddenly feels wrong and alien and maybe not even a word at all. (laughs) That's jamais vu. And and understanding that and why it happens in our brains, which we're only at the beginning of, will help us understand how we understand language at all, Mm. where it goes in our heads and what we do with it. That's so, so I thought these they're, they're all very interesting and valid. I thought these were going to be I thought these were satirical, like giving prizes. No, they're genuine. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're fascinating. It's good, isn't it? That, that's what I like about it. That I love the fact that there are scientists who and often the titles are funny. Mm. They recognise what they're doing is legit. That's otherwise they wouldn't do it. And that it's their life, it's their careers, but they do take it seriously. So that literature award um, has in the title. Uh, it basically has, when you repeat a word, many, 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 many times, is in the title of the paper. So all credit to the authors and to the editors and the publishers going, yeah, we get what you're doing there. We'll go with it. Well, that's um, been fascinating, 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 fascinating. You're um, talking about the Ig Nobel Prize. Well, if people want to find out more, can they just Google it? Ig Nobel, two words, IG Nobel Prize, you'll find it. Chris Avery, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Triple R. Yesterday, I got my, my pop in on, so just turning up unannounced, I guess, mm. to people's houses. Um, but it was plural. Pardon? Plural. Yep. Oh, uh, the whole day of it. Yeah, yeah. I was like, why not? God. I mean, I'm enjoying this. Did Let's you go leave another... your phone at home? No opportunity. To well, text. yeah. This is the thing. I was over the other side of town, so 
south of the river down where my mum lives mm-hmm. and um, they're going to an appointment and I tried to call my mum several times and I couldn't get onto her. So I was like, I should definitely take advantage of seeing her while I'm down here. Um, no response, no answering. She was screening my calls. And then <laughs> obviously, <laughs> and then I was like, oh, maybe I'll just leave it. And then I was like, hang on, wait a minute. No, this is a good 50 minutes from where I live. Mm. I'm just going to pop in. And it wasn't just a regular pop-in because she was working. So she's a teacher. She has like a studio where she teaches kids how to sew. She does a school holiday program. Okay. I'm like, I'm doing a work pop-in. <gasps> so I turned up mid-class. Wow. <laughs> yeah. The high stakes. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, hi. She's like, what are you doing here? How was it received? I mean, it was received well. You'd hope. I'm a, me and my mum have a good relationship. I was betting on a good result. You know, maybe it's a little overbearing that I'm turning up mid-class, but, you know, it's like a reverse of if your parents ever turned up at school to drop off the lunch and you're embarrassed or something. It was like the reverse of that. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, everyone, this is my daughter and she does radio. I'm like, yep. And then I helped myself mm-hmm. to some snacks. <laughs> <laughs> Circulated. I like that. Yeah. Because you're like, I can't get onto you. I know where you are. Yeah. I'm not missing this opportunity. 50-minute drive. It yeah. was the sun was shining. Maybe oh. it was the vitamin D. Yeah. So we had a chat and, you know, it was lovely. And then was, was there any part of her that was like, I'm working, like, I can't there give was, you attention? Look, there was okay. a subtle <laughs> shuffle of, can I get oh, you a right. tea? Or anyway, I better get back to it. Mm. Which I was like, fair enough. So I knew the time limit. I'm not that socially unaware that, you know, I was like, all right. This is this has been nice. I'm going to leave on a high. And then I was like, well, that went so well. My sister lives around the corner okay. with her two kids. They're on school holiday. I go, we're going for number two. <gasps> yeah, I got things to do, but that went so well. Was Why? your sister not answering either? <laughs> she was not. No one was answering. <laughs> Maybe there's something in that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just wait. It deepens. So I turn up at my sister's house. Turns out they've got quite lax security. I let myself in. So I'm wandering through the house. It's the home invasion (laughs) (laughs) pop-in. When does it stop being a pop-in and become a breaking and entering? (laughs) Well, we're family, so I figure we're good. Um, So I'm wandering through the house. Yeah, they didn't emerge for a while. Um, so I'm not sure whether they were trying to buy time, hoping I would party them up, yeah, yeah, yeah. grab a few more snacks. Yeah, exactly. I persisted. <laughs> were you? What were you doing? I was like, you know, yeah, hello. Yeah. Started calling out the names, Jazz, Jazza, oh, Sunny, like my nieces. And yeah, it really took a while, but I, I, I hung How in there. the house? Wow. Yeah, it's living life. <laughs> yeah, good on them. <laughs> and then that they emerged and they're like, what are you doing here? Again, same. And then they're like, are you here to see Jordan? Georgia, my other sister, who oh. lives in the country, oh. who was in town that I didn't know about. Oh, my God. <laughs> so they're not answering my calls. And one's in town from, from Mansfield and no, no one told you. me. I go, no, I'm not here to see Georgia, but I'd like to see her. So it was a two-for-one pop-in. <laughs> so Georgia came out from under the couch. Said, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, hello. Here are you. Oh, let's have a cup of tea. So oh. the second pop-in, got to see my nieces on school holiday. So it was great. Yeah. So I really enjoyed it. So, What was your country sister's excuse for not telling you? 
None. She didn't even try and <laughs> pretend. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm here. I'm like, okay. Oh yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. No, so I it's fine. Yeah, yeah the, I'll let her off the hook. I am actually seeing her today, properly to catch up, a pre-arranged catch up. Okay. Yeah. And um, so I'll I'll grill her on those details and report <laughs> yeah, back to you. Yeah, we want answers. Yeah, but I, look, I know people feel nervous about a popping. Obviously, this is my family, but yeah. yeah, I'm just like wondering, like, what is the vibe out there on the pop-in. Like I know obviously it can catch people off guard. Mm. Uh, look, in general, I feel like more people are against the pop-in than for it. Well, but- I think technology has just changed <laughs> <laughs> the world, you know. Yeah. It doesn't. You've got the text, I know. you've got the phone call. Yeah. Um, you know. I, I mean, I did try, I guess, but yeah. I hear what I hear what you, where you're going with that, Sam, for sure. Yeah, but it's just like the element of surprise. There I is thought, something nice about that. Yeah, and I thought maybe we'd shifted on it a little bit or maybe there could have been like a change of heart about the pop-in since the lockdown. Just mm. like, yeah, go on. But here's what I was thinking about, that I think the more the longer the distance you've travelled, the more acceptable the pop-in is. Totally. Yeah. We've popped in yeah. my partner's um, nonna lives in Lee and Gatha. And okay. we've just, if we're in Gippsland, of like course. we're going to drop in on Connie. Yes. You know? And um, yeah, she often doesn't have a hearing aid in, may not answer the phone. We're, we're going around, but she's got a pop-in house. The whole town just pops in oh, there. Oh, I love And gets that. some lasagna oh. at any time of day or night. And I love it. So I'm becoming a pop-in convert. I do have pop-in anxiety. Of course. Your whole story was making me anxious. <laughs> <laughs> we were building to some sort of dead body. Um, so I'm glad that didn't happen. Um, but, yeah, I'm trying to be a popping convert because yeah. I think it's better. It's better for the soul. Oh, look, it's a beautiful thing. There's absolutely limits to it and I love that. And they, and how does Connie – Connie obviously loves the popping. Oh, she just puts the coffee on again, puts oh, the Bialetti on. Oh, it's going all day. The Lee and Gaff the popping. Yeah. yeah, the Gitzland popping. What about you, Mum? I like it. I, I think it's – I think it, it very rarely happens. But it did – change mm. my like for it has changed since having a baby of course because yeah. okay. yep. if people were to just pop in unannounced it's like you know oh but he just went to sleep or about to do this or about to do that mm. um pre-baby bring it on love it but i mean i say that because it didn't happen yes <laughs> so it's like yes. oh wouldn't it be nice and i'm sure if people kept rocking up my door i'd be like oh because there's something about depends who it is if it's a sibling anytime mm. no matter what that's fine yeah um if it's then it's like what if then there's a you know then there are your different um, tiers of friends yes mm-hmm. and what if it's someone who you like don't know how to get rid of mm. yeah if there's a misunderstanding about the tier of friendship maybe yeah. they thought they were quite lower tier or, yeah. or higher high tier. tier I would say mm. high tier and then that's the kind of scenario where it's unfortunate but you go look I'm going to draw you something it's a it's a tier system and I'm going <laughs> to let you know where you're where at you, you need to have it on hand yeah yeah the yeah front door. <laughs> like the yeah. food pyramid oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. so you think that you are tier a one? vegetable but oh. you're not you're actually more like a Dessert. You lots of fun, but it is from time to time. <laughs> yeah. More of a weekend treat. Yeah, more of a weekend treat. So I've definitely been a, um, a part of a pop in, and you know straight away. It, I actually wasn't leading the pop in. It was my friend, and she's like, "Let's do it," because she one of her friends lived in my apartment block. This was a different one to where I'm living now, and she's like, "They're here. Let's pop in." It was a Sunday morning. 
And, you know, it was maybe like 11. It was a reasonable hour, but still, I don't know. Um, She's like, no, let's do it. I've been meaning to introduce you two anyway. Oh, you didn't know them? No. And and so we went (laughs) in. She's good friends, very close with them. But soon as we entered... I knew the, that the this vibe. was not an appropriate pop-in. Was there not an intercom option in the apartment? <laughs> no, there's not. There was no intercom. That is where intercom security doors, windows are really handy so you can screen. Yeah. There was no screening. I think that's also as well. Yeah. Whether you're set up to accept or decline pop-ins with the visual But I cue. think I would, even if it was a, you know, like we're talking like a tier three. I'm acting like a, I've got like three friends to my name. I don't know why I'm talking about a tier system. <laughs> and they're tier. just learning that there's a one, <laughs> one a third, two, and second, three. third tier. But say it was one. that third friend of mine. No, but I, I would still like as much as, yeah, you want a screening system. Yeah. To know that your friend is at your front door and you're not answering it, is, mm. it I couldn't do that. Yeah. No matter, no, no matter like what level it was. Yeah. Because I constantly, you constantly see videos of people as well surprising people overseas. Yes. That's essentially just a, a, a very expensive pop-in. It's a long-haul pop-in. It's a long-haul pop-in, but no one thinks of it as a pop-in because they're like, it's a surprise. It's dressed up different. Again, it's the distance. Yeah. It's like, oh, how sweet. But imagine if a tier three did an international pop-in Well, on that you. happened to my in-laws. They had relatives <laughs> rock up from Germany on their, on their doorstep and were like, we're here for two weeks. Oh, wow. That, she was like... I guess I'll get the bed ready. <laughs> yeah, that feels different. That feels like less of a pop-in and more of a, an accommodation it thing. feels a bit grifty. <laughs> yeah. Or like, am I in trouble? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Are you on the run? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe they're on the run. The last element to the pop-in, I guess, of like, where do you think a surprise party sits in a pop-in? It's like oh, a reverse pop-in or like inverted or Just something? Just going to put it out there. Would love a surprise party. <laughs> 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 never had one. I've never had one. I've been part of one for others and it always has been okay. such a thrill. Yeah. I've never had one. But do you oh, think you would? Ever <laughs> really, think... Sam hates it. I just, the, like the idea of having to open presents in front of people it's already, oh, yeah. like yeah. on a pre-prepared um, situation already stresses me out. So yeah. the idea of doing that for 30 people or three, um, <laughs> depending on how many people turn up. Is it the performative element? Yeah, yeah. It's the performance yeah. anxiety of being able to show uh, love and appreciation <gasps> yeah. on command. If you I are struggle with adequately that. grateful. Yeah. Really stressful. I really feel you on that as well. Oh. Um, yeah, so the poppy, and I guess for those who like to emotionally gamble, <laughs> do it today. Yeah, do it thrive. <laughs> Triple R. Pasta love: how to make, eat, and celebrate pasta like an Italian is in bookstores now and we are joined by author Jacqueline Creepy. Hey Jacqueline. Hi, good, good morning. morning. <laughs> uh, I, I already love, have a lot of love for pasta. Great. I'm glad you've created this book, but what first inspired you to put pen to paper? So, oh, that's such a big question. I'll try to be concise. So I wrote a book called Nonna Knows Best and then I wrote a book called Garden Like a Nonno all about what my grandparents taught me and that generation of Italian migrants who came to Australia in the 50s and 60s. And I thought, that's me done. That, that's, you know, I, ch- I typically write children's books. And then I just, I'm obsessed with pasta. I can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> I'm making it constantly. Um, and I love the full gamut of pasta. I love packet pasta. I love fresh pasta. I love really complicated pasta. I love really simple pasta. 
And I, I, I miss making pasta with my nonna and that was a big part of my childhood and I thought maybe I'll just go and make pasta with some other people's nonnas and I started doing that and then I just thought I want to put these women in a book and that's how it started. I love the, the stories that uh, kind of punctuate punctuate this book you you have recipes but you also have these beautiful uh, migrant stories I was really touched by this because there's so many of the women that you interview they they talk about coming to Australia when they're really young like some as young young as six years old being separated from their family not being um, not speaking English and just having to adapt I thought of course cooking is a way in which you reconnect with culture and you you're reminded and it's passed down through your family and I just loved that the thought of um, these women in their kitchens kneading the dough um, there's so much in that and and these stories are so beautifully told how did you how did you find these people to interview yeah the uh, the Italian whisper network really helped me out there I'd get phone calls saying I've got a nonna for you um, so I wasn't ready to announce the book because it wasn't a book at that point I just mm. wanted to meet with some nonnas and make pasta and see if it was a book and so I started with two women who are family friends and who actually lived with my grandparents when they first came to Australia before they were married. Um, they were in their early 20s at that time and they, you know, literally shared my mother's bed with her when she was a child. Um, and then, you know, a couple of weeks later they were married and moved in with their husbands because, of course, you couldn't do that before you are married. Um, and then I just, yeah, I just started quietly mentioning to certain, you know, mostly Italian people that I was doing, you know, I wanted to make pasta with nonnas. I wanted past- nonnas from different regions making different shapes, um, different dough styles. And, yeah, so some didn't make it into the book because I had too many, you know, fettuccine nonnas or, <laughs> <laughs> or too Pretty many nonnas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> from the same <laughs> that, was, that was a challenge to get a good arichetta nonna, but I did it. Oh, okay. She's in there. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the Italian Whisper Network, mm. very powerful, highly recommend. <laughs> <laughs> well, the nonnas that you do feature, uh, they just tell such amazing stories. And I, I think the fact that it really focuses, I feel like for a lot of um, – here in Melbourne – we have an amazing Italian community um, and a lot of people might, you know, you talk about the fact that there's no agreement yes. <laughs> such on exactly mm. how to do these recipes, but you do offer a bit of a guide. I, I feel like your, your way of writing about pasta makes it very accessible. I am not a very good cook. I did buy a pasta maker in lockdown. Well done. Um, and it's lovely to see that you're using a lot of seasonal vegetables because I'm one of those people that often don't think of pasta as a summer or spring oh. dish. But it is. Oh, and absolutely. going back through your, your recipe. So can you talk to – for anyone who's who's like me and, and doesn't realise how good this can be in a hotter weather. <laughs> so for me, pasta is two things. It's seasonal and mm. it's determined by my mood. <laughs> so in the book I have seasonal sources and so I have different sources for each season. I'm also a gardener so I'm growing most of my own vegetables and so, you know, I know when – I've got so many cherry tomatoes. I've got so much eggplant. And all I see, I, you know, I'm out in my garden, all I'm seeing is pasta. Mm. Like that's pasta Lenore, my right there. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, in autumn I'm picking my chestnuts and I've got all this chimedirapa and, you know, and it's mm. just all to me seasonal. And then the mood factor, um, and I've got a section in the book about what what pasta to eat depending on <laughs> yes. your mood. I do and love it's, that. <laughs> it's sort of funny but it's true. It's like what do I feel like? Mm. And so I might have the sauce but, you know, what shape am I going to pair with it? Am I going to do something classic or am I going to mix it all up? I was going to say you also um, you also provide lots of information about how to make this a no waste pasta and and like you said 
cooking uh, with seasonal produce is a great way to keep the cost down as well because, you know, seasonal vegetables are cheaper. Um, but can you tell us some tips about how to you can use maybe some offcuts and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. Italians waste nothing, um, either in the garden <laughs> or in the kitchen. And so I guess the classic thing is when you're making egg dough pasta and you're working all around it with a cutter, you'll have little offcuts. Um, they're called maltagliati, which means badly cut. Um, so they're not a classic shape. They, they might just be a little triangle or a little strip of pasta. And so we put those on a tray, freeze them um, for sort of an hour and then put them in a bag and just keep adding to that until you have a big bag of weird shapes and then that can go in a soup. Um, oh, and for that. Yeah, and the starch of it really thickens up any kind of soup. Mm. It's like a minestrone. Uh, exactly, perfect. Um, or a pasta fagioli, like a beanie soup as well. Um and then, of course, if you're making egg dough pasta, you've got a lot of eggshells. Composters um, will tell you they will not break down easily, quickly, just half eggshells. So you roast them at 100 degrees for about 15 minutes, crush them up in a mortar and pestle or blender, and then you can add that to your pet food. I give it. I'm, I make my own dog food and I put that in there because it's calcium. I put it in my soil because it's calcium. Yes. So whenever I plant tomatoes, I put a big handful of those crushed up oh, eggshells. Oh, I just had Digger in yes. tomatoes this okay. morning, yeah. so he'd love that. So to prevent blossom Mendrot, which is a really common Melbourne um, tomato fungus problem, like just get a, get a boost of calcium from the beginning. Oh wow! And so one of the benefits, you actually started. You said at the start of the segment um, that you're not that you dry dry pasta, so you're not a pasta snob when it comes Absolutely to that. Absolutely not. I love that about you. Oh, <laughs> never, 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 never. And even you know, within the range of dried pasta, there's very cheap dried pastas and there's very expensive dried pastas. I love them all. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah, can yeah. you tell much of a difference if I'm buying a packet of dried? spaghetti and it's a dollar versus two dollars fifty look a connoisseur can yeah sure it's not the pasta is not going to absorb as much of the sauce which Mm -hmm. is sort of the whole key thing to pasta that we're trying to do Mm. um and that's why in the book i talk so much about always cooking finishing the cooking of the pasta in the sauce Mm. to give it an opportunity to absorb that sauce Oh, what's been a real oh, game changer for me is the pasta water. Oh, yes. Secret ingredient. that in mm-hmm. and taking it into mm-hmm. once you've mixed through the sauce. Yeah, yeah, maintaining that water that you cook Salty is the Mediterranean okay. and mm. it will emulsify pasta sauces and it just will add such a flavour kick. Yeah. Yeah. I like that there's a part in, part in the book where you, which is a big bugbear of mine when people don't mix in the sauce and the pasta oh. together. You say that's non-negotiable. It's <laughs> always going to be in the same pan. I try to be very sort of democratic throughout the book and be like, cook it how you like it, but this is what I do. And then with that, I'm like, this is a hard and fast rule. Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> a, real, um, a real game changer I found with pasta making was buying a digital scale oh, yes. and you talk about this in the book and you also give a really lovely uh, list, we we're talking about lists yes. this morning, <laughs> of, of you know in- equipment that you could buy that is really going to um, help you, you don't need to get all of them. What would be kind of the go-to for people wanting to start out to get to get cooking on pasta? Yeah, so I would start with a pasta and water dough so you don't mm. immediately need to buy a pasta machine. All you really will need is your hands and some kitchen tools that you have. Um, like if you want to make orecchiette, all you need is a knife. Um, if you want to make fusilli, all you need is a, a skewer. Um, mm. So I would start really basic. I think the first investment, though, that you'll need to make is a pasta board, which is a wooden board that has a lip that goes over the bench. So it, while you're kneading, it's not moving. And it does. it just makes it 
a more pleasurable experience. And also, I mean, it's, it's functional as well. You never wash that pasta board. It never mm. gets wet. And the wooden surface will absorb any excess moisture from your dough. So it'll just be a more balanced in terms of hydration dough. Oh. That's amazing. I realise I don't have one of those. I think I need to yeah. get one. Yeah, I've been making pasta all these years the wrong mm. way. <laughs> There's no wrong way. <laughs> Do you have one? Because pasta I think is often seen as like an easy midweek yes. meal, right? And it's a lot of the, the first thing people learn to cook. But what about if you're trying to impress people? Is yeah. there room for pasta? Is there a special occasion one that you go to? Well, for me, lasagna is the ultimate oh. fancy. It takes a long time. It's a real labour of love. Um, my nonna made it with 18 layers of pasta. <gasps> sort of wafer-thin pasta sheets. And that's a very central Italian style. So if I make you that, I really love you. (laughs) (laughs) That would would work on me. You'd have my heart. That's incredible. How long would that take to prepare? So my nonna wouldn't take that long. Me, it takes half a day. Okay. Um, Yeah, because it's the the ragu, the bechamel. It's so many components. And the great thing about lasagna, I find, is you make it, it's a total bombsite of your kitchen because you've just got so much going on. And then you clean it up and the lasagna's in the oven and it's like it never happened. (laughs) (laughs) That never happened. And then you get to eat it. (laughs) I do love that pasta making can be such a group uh, effort. I've I've had friends over before and we've all kind of chipped in and it it almost feels like childlike. I didn't grow up making pasta and uh, just like it almost is like Play-Doh. Exactly. It's (laughs) Play-Doh for adults. I do say that. And I think it's great if you are doing one of those hand shapes to not be finished by the time people arrive and let Mm. them have a go Mm. because it's such a transferable skill. Anyone can learn how to do this. And, you know, the first time you form an an orecchiette, it is sort of, you sort of, it sort of blows your mind. It's like, I did that. Yeah. (laughs) It tastes different. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Real satisfaction when you've literally made it by hand and you see it in front of you. And also all the better if you can impress your guests before they eat. Yeah. So by the time they eat it. (laughs) You've got them on board. (laughs) Um, Well, the book is Pasta Love. It's out now everywhere. Jacqueline Krupe. Uh, Any final tips if people are inspired? Can you have pasta for breakfast? Absolutely. Yes. So what I do, any leftover pasta, I just beat up some eggs, put that through the pasta, really hot pan with olive oil, put it in, make a spaghetti frittata. (gasps) Mm. Um, That's delicious. And you just want to get a nice crust on it and it sort of becomes a totally new meal. Or just fry an egg and put it on top of some pasta and that's breakfast too. You've made my year. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Validated. My my advice for anyone who wants to make pasta is make pasta. Like this book is a call to action. I want people to make pasta. I want them to feel confident. I want them to feel like I'm standing next to them, reassuring them, telling them how delicious it's going to be and hopefully eating it with them when they're done. (laughs) Jack and Krupe, thank you so much. Triple R. I had a bump in with like a relatively new friend, maybe like they've become, like a, they've gone from an acquaintance to I would say yeah, like a friend mm. over the last you know maybe five years. I would say slow burn, yeah, slow burn. <laughs> and I saw them not long ago, and they were like, actually, I've got, I've got I've got to show you something. I've got a question for you. And then um, they continue to tell me they're like, as they're kind of scrolling through their phone looking for something, they're like, basically, I have to organise a work party and I was like uh, having to put together some ideas or something like that. And then he's like, then I remembered I I had organised this previous work party at another job um, and it was a great space. He's like, yes, we can use that again and just kind of, kind of show his current employees like 
a successful event that he'd put on. And so it's like, so I dug up the photos and he's like, and then I found this and he presented me with a photo of myself holding a beer, very casually dressed, hovering over the food table. Oh, best place to be at a party. The cheese board. (laughs) Um, And this was like 10 years ago. I didn't know him then. And he's like, what were you doing at my work party 10 years ago? Oh, wow. (laughs) I know. And essentially I was like (laughs) retrospectively busted for gate crashing his work party (gasps) 10 years later. (laughs) It's a cold case and they found evidence. It's correct. He goes, what are you doing there? Did you realise you were having, do you remember a photo being taken of you? No, like it's candid. It's not Uh, like I'm posing for it. And it's literally the most discriminating photo. It's like what we've spoken about this previous of like how long should you hover by the snack or like the cheese board <laughs> I'm literally like being the worst guest ever beer drink in hand and just like I feel like my mouth was full and then there was something in my hand on the way to my mouth as well uh, yeah, and, and yeah and then I was like what was I doing there and I remembered yeah it was like 10 years ago my housemate it was for like a Melbourne magazine it was a private party. It was like a quarterly creative journal and it was for staff, but I also think they invited some of the contributors mm-hmm. and people maybe who subscribed. And it was early on in the magazine. And I remember my housemate going, oh, I just got a text from my cousin going, um, he was going to go to this event. He invited me, but he can no longer go. Do you want to be my plus one? Do you think, yeah, do you think people thought that you were like an influencer? Or oh, just I like, she so. must be, she must be well known. She must be a influencer. <laughs> Look at the way she's hauling into Look that yeah. cheese. <laughs> Look at the way she's hoovering those free drinks and food. She must be a professional. I yeah. know. So I was like, this is so funny. I can't believe I'm getting busted so late yeah. down the track. And I remember thinking it was quite funny and feeling like a little sly at the time. And yesterday, or maybe, well, I think it was yesterday we were talking pop-ins, weren't we? Yes. And now I feel like this kind of takes it up a level of mm. like there's the pop-in and then there's just straight up being kind of uninvited. This kind of reminds me of like the early days of Facebook when you'd like you'd wake up to 20 photos that oh, you've been tagged yes. in and you're like, why have people put this up in an, into an album? Yeah, I know, yeah. publicly. Yeah, and you're like, we all you like, trace trash. tracing back where yeah. you were or where yeah. everyone was. Piecing together the night. Yeah. Like, great, glad there's photographic proof of that. I, I just couldn't believe it. It was so funny. And I was like, yeah, like gate crashing is quite an ag- aggressive term. But, popping but you, into you, part- you came as someone's plus one. Yeah, kind of, but we weren't invited. Uh, like, oh, oh, the person you were with wasn't invited either. No, so the cousin mm. was out of the picture, and we persisted just for the free food and drink. Oh, no. Yeah, I feel like. Do you remember the party well? Do you remember yeah. having a good time? Or... Yeah, I mean, I remember feeling really out of place. Like it was clearly mm. a professional kind of networking event. Everyone knew each other except. <laughs> yeah, and we were like, if you could see this picture, it was just like epitome of like twenties, just looking for a feed and a drink. I and mean, some people pay to rent a crowd, you know. Yeah. They got they got free labour out of you now. Yeah, I don't know if we bought any kind of real credibility or anything <laughs> like that. But I was trying to think back as well to like, I feel like that's in your teens, mm. in your 20s, turning up to parties. Oh, and just the events. confidence. Yeah. Mm. But I, well, I remember a few years ago when there was no Meredith happening because of yes. the pandemic and everything, my friends and I had our own little 
fest like you know we rented out a whole campground mm. um and so there were maybe 30 40 of us and we had friends rotating doing dj sets and with a whole thing to ourselves and that was the beauty of it like we'll book out this entire campground um and then stay there for the weekend and it'll be like our own little mini festival mm. in place of what would, could have been should yep. have been um and so it was like and we won't be pissing anyone off because no we've booked out every campsite so mm-hmm. it'll be fine yeah and then it's like two in the morning and we're all dancing and then we turn around and there are just these three guys at the back um, of the crowd yeah. like just kind of bopping their heads along to the music. And I was like, oh, they weren't here yesterday. Oh, I've never seen you before. And I was like, maybe they're friends of this person. Maybe it's that person's cousin. Maybe it's this. And then I think they thought. There must have been one empty camp slot that we didn't realise. Yeah. And I think – and they were they were internationals and they were on holiday. I don't know how they'd made it here actually given it was locked down. Anyway, and they – I think they thought they just stumbled across an actual festival. Oh, it's just like how Australians, yeah. how Australians camp. <laughs> They're like, this is great. Yeah. And they were just like having the best time and then they're just like – there, yeah, they just stood at the back and danced around, and um, that was... sounds like the perfect gate crasher. Though you don't, as long as they're nice, I actually don't mind a, a gate crash. Yeah, no. I feel like you know if they, they commit and yeah. if they bring the bring the vibe. Well, that's it. They didn't come fine. and start a fight or steal yeah, any booze. No. They just were there for the good times. Yeah, I feel like that is a key element to like a good party, especially when it's like the kind of like dancing mm. bigger like parties. It's like. If you look around and there's a few people you don't know, it, it adds an element of excitement mm. to yeah. it. And we've been totally. missing that throughout yeah. all the lockdowns of seeing people you don't know. Like, that mm. was yeah. such a thrill. I actually accidentally gate crashed. Uh, it wasn't a party, it was a picnic, which maybe is worse because oh. it's in daylight. Love that. But it's confusing. You know, you go to Eddie Gardens, I thought it was the location, it wasn't. I sat down, I was talking to people, and it was like only when I started being like, oh, how do you know? And then I was like, I'm at the, this is not <laughs> no. the right one. I'm at the wrong picnic. <laughs> yeah. Did that sounds mortifying. It was I yeah, surprise I don't remember being ashamed of it. Maybe I should have been. <laughs> I just love that I just wish that there was a photo up for you. Well maybe there like, is. Just like you with the group. <laughs> yeah. I would have been so hovering over the cheese board. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Dipping your hand into their esky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, there's plenty of fun to be had. Because I remember we used to host a lot of house parties at my a share house I was at. And, yeah, people just blatantly kind of stumbling in mm. and knowing no one. And I remember loving that as well. Just being like, yeah, come on. Like mm. I saw it was a gift to to the community having like <laughs> a party and welcoming in and that added that extra element. So you could subscribe or donate to Triple R or you could just show up at a house party. Exactly, and that's your contribution yeah. to Gate the community. Gate <laughs> so popping in, make sure you get a photo and then you're busting for it 10 years down the track. <laughs> Triple R. Victoria has a new premier. Jacinta Allen now holds the state's highest office following Daniel Andrews' resignation on Tuesday after nine years in the role. It was a period defined by major infrastructure projects and significant reforms like voluntary assisted dying, as well, of course, as COVID-19 lockdowns. But many challenges remain for the new government with high levels of debt and remaining questions around integrity. To help make sense of this significant moment in Victorian politics, we're joined by Dr Damon Alexander, Senior Lecturer in Politics over at Swinburne University of Technology. Damon, welcome. Good morning. Happy to be here. Spring in the air and 
long weekend and grand final in the offing. And part of the grand final, more to the point, which we'll get to by the end of this chat, I'm will sure. Will we? <laughs> we definitely will. Um, I mean, a lot has happened in Victorian politics over the past decade under Daniel Andrews' watch. What do you think will be his main legacy? I think the, the infrastructure projects are the, the obvious answer there, um, the, the government has changed the face of Melbourne. Uh, it's changed how we all get into work through the, the transport projects that are in train at the moment. Um, incredible progressive policy reforms in, in social policy as well. Um, you mentioned voluntary assisted dying. Um, made quite a, a, a lot of quite brave decisions. It hasn't been a, a, afraid to, to run on potentially controversial political issues. I think the, the political legacy will also be quite interesting. Um, that the Andrews government has continued the, the process that John Cain began and then Braxa and Brumby, Brumby sort of continued of, of making Labor the natural party of government in this state. I think they've been in office for 29 of the last 41 years, which has really sort of pushed the, the Liberal Party to the periphery in many respects, and that, that's going to be a difficult pattern to change, I think. Yeah, and I mean, what about his leadership style in particular? I mean, he's, it's been said that he ran a very you know tight ship, a highly centralised government. I mean, thinking about some of those previous leaders, such as John Cain and, and Brumby and, and Brax in particular, I mean, has Daniel's, uh, Daniel Andrews' leadership style been quite distinctive in the way that he's actually run government, do you think? I think so, yes. Uh, it's, it's broken from that tradition, particularly that John Cain ran a, a very sort of consensus-based government and cabinet in particular. Brax and Brumby, similar, they were surrounded by um, a cabinet with a lot of talent and were open to, to letting ministers run their own race. Quite a disciplined cabinet as well, uh, but the, the centralisation under Daniel Andrews has, has really gone next level. And that's great when you've got a strong leader, it lets them manage effectively. But the the potential problem with that is that the level of dissension, which we haven't really seen generally, but there's also a, a potential for a, a large vacuum, obviously, when they do move on. Mm. And I think we, we saw that with Jeff Kennett as a, another good example. Similar in style in some respects. Uh, I think we're probably, well, Labor's fortunate that Jacinda Allen has been there every sort of step of the way uh, and is a fairly strong political operator herself, but there's still a, a risk of a, a bit of a power vacuum and people getting a little bit perhaps less disciplined without the, the, the threat of a, an all-powerful leader at the, the heart of things here in Victoria. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose it's, it's easy to talk about unity when you keep winning election after election. Um, you know, Jacinta Allen, as you say, has been around for a very long time. She first came into to Parliament, I think, um, just as she turned 26, basically, quite a long time ago. What, what do we sort of know about her and what kind of leader do you think we can expect her to be? It's going to be interesting to, to see how she responds now with Daniel Andrews gone. Uh, she's, I actually went to, to university with Jacinda Latrobe in Bendigo way back in the day. We spent about four years together and um, went on a, an internship in Canberra for four or five months together. So back then I knew her quite well. Mm. Um, she comes from a background that is heavily grounded in community politics. Um, she's obviously been a key player within the Andrews government over the, the last decade or, or so. She doesn't have the same gravitas within the party, I don't think. She's a, an effective factional player, but doesn't have the authority, obviously, of, of Daniel Andrews. Um, that will be a bit of a test, I think. Um, 
we saw a little bit of that start to emerge yesterday with a little bit of a, a messy sort of transition with uh, some of the, the factions sort of getting a little bit brave or braver than, than perhaps what they have been in public. Um, so the challenge will be to control that, but winning papers over a lot of that. So provided, I think, that she maintains Labor's significant lead in the polls, uh, backbenchers want to be re-elected mm. uh, and political disunity is obviously a, a barrier to that. So there, there's almost a natural discipline there to stay in line provided you can see something positive coming at the end of it. Can we talk a little bit about that that you alluded to there with the, with the factions? Ben Carroll kind of made a, a surprise. Mm. He didn't vie for the, for the leadership yesterday and then he'll be deputy now. I think people would know his name less than Jacinta Allen's, arguably, and he's from the right faction of the Labor Party and uh, associated with the Shoppers Union and things like that. What do you think that any disunity, do you think, is that awkward now that he tried to go for it and then they went with Jacinta anyway? I don't think so. I think my understanding was the original intention was is if the, the left got the leadership, which obviously they would through through Jacinta, then the right would get the, the deputy leadership. It then seemed, it sounds like... The uh, socialist left got a little bit adventurous and put forward their own candidate for the deputy, but obviously that was worked out within caucus behind closed doors. Uh, and you would, we can talk about it being a little bit messy, but this certainly looks like it came out of the blue. Mm. And to transition to a, a leader after such a dominant position, a, a dominant leader in Daniel Andrews, within three or four hours, um, if that's as messy as it gets, then they're probably not travelling too badly, mm. I would think. Mm. Yeah. And I'm curious as well, like, I mean, talking about, like, the internal kind of sides of the party with just into stepping into power, but what about, like, you're facing up to the media? It's like, love him or hate him. Like, um, Dan Andrews was, like, an undeniable, like, communicator and had this charisma and you spoke of, like, the social policies he put through. And he's, definitely his approach was just, like, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to kind of talk about it too much and just took action. And that seemed to be, like, a very distinct kind of decision on his part like how important do you think like Jacinta's kind of approach in the way she presents herself moving forward will be yeah I think we'll see quite a significant transition Mm. uh that was Daniel Andrews natural way of leading I Mm. think and authenticity authenticity is obviously really important in Mm. politics Jacinta doesn't strike me as that style of leader she Mm. has been incredibly strong um throughout the the last three terms uh she's not that sort of, of um, crash through or crash leader. She's mm-hmm. quite pragmatic, I think. Mm. Um, she's a very good listener by all accounts as well. Uh, so you would think things will open up in terms of the decision-making process. The flip side of that is she's been part of that core group for, for the best part of a decade as well mm-hmm. uh, and has been, I suppose, inculcated into that that sort of leadership environment. So I would think she'll break away from that, but that's not going to be necessarily an easy, easy thing to do. Mm. It's interesting talking about sort of opening up. I mean, there have been um, criticisms from from journalists and the like about the government being quite poor on things like FOI requests, and obviously there's been integrity issues along the journey as well with you know the red shirt scandal and, and a number of kind of IBAC investigations. Do you imagine there'll be any changes there in terms of integrity and transparency with someone else at the top? I think there has to be. I think that's one clear way that she can start to differentiate herself from the, the previous period um, and to to deal with one of the, the key criticisms. Uh, like the Andrews government has been hammered by every accountability agency in the state, mm. whether it's the Ombudsman, whether we're talking about the Auditor-General. Um, that's clearly a, a 
blind spot for the government and has been. Uh, I think that's something they have to address fairly quickly because that's, particularly for a third, fourth term government, that's potentially a, a significant issue. The public gets sick of that sort of behaviour. Um, so that's something that I think she's going to have to address fairly quickly. And so what does all this mean for the state Liberal Party? That's a really interesting question. I, I'm a bit mixed on this. On the one hand, you've seen one of the most formidable political operators this state has seen sail off into the sunset. Um, that's a positive. Um, it's like having a, a key centre forward disappear from the from the field, I suppose, if you want to use the <laughs> football. Like Anthony and Rumpel getting rubbed out in the 2020 grand final. Don't even go there, Dylan. It still hurts. <laughs> but uh, but the, the flip side of that is... That means they've got to change their messaging. Mm. Um, Daniel Andrews was clearly a polarising figure uh, and that's that's an easy target for an opposition. That's gone now. So the the trick will be to to see what replaces that in terms of their, their strategy, whether they can continue to tie Jacinta Allen to that style of government. Um, that will be important. Uh, and the Liberal Party's got their own issues to deal with at the moment. Yeah. John Pesuto is, is dealing with a, a fractured party and they're doing it with a relatively small talent base in, in the sense that they've only got 28 seats in the, in the lower house. Um, there's not an obvious leadership challenger to my mind, so that, that helps him. But you would want to see some sort of improvement in the polls within the, the next three or four months, I would imagine, or that, that sort of pressure will start to get unbearable. Yeah, and it seems like that kind of culture war approach hasn't really worked in Victoria with certain segments of the media backing that in as well. You know, Daniel Andrews seemed to even gain more support, you know, off the back of that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And that's, we spoke about before how he's continued that transition to Labor being the natural party of government in this state. That's a very hard perception to break down mm. uh, and we're coming off the back of a pandemic and some controversial decisions around that so if that's not fertile ground for an opposition to do well then mm. I don't really understand what is so there's a, a significant amount of pressure now on John Pesuto to to, to pull the, the Liberal Party together and, and mount a more effective opposition. Yeah very quickly heading down to open training um, are we that the pie is going to get it done on oh, the weekend? Absolutely highly confident he says shaking in his uh, I am loath to point this out and I'm already regretting it but um, she's the, Jacinta Allen will be the first prim, female premier we've had in 30 years last time we had a female premier do you know who won the grand final? <gasps> Uh, Collingwood uh, so it could be a good omen thank you very much I, I feel I much saw, more confident I saw something about yeah John Kane's resignation happening just before the grand final then as well someone posted on social sorry, media so there's omens all over the place it's written in the stars no bummers alright <laughs> well, hold so on to whatever Dave. we can <laughs> Dr Damon Alexander um, senior lecturer in politics at Swinburne University talking all about changes at the top of um, of Victorian politics <laughs> that's right Triple R. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website. <laughs>